0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Good to be here, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt. Pleasure to be here. Well, gentlemen, it's nice to have you here on this Saturday. You know, just over a week ago, on uh, September the 17th, it was Constitution Day. And uh, that's a day specifically designated by an act of Congress when Americans are supposed to honor... Uh, the document that created our system of government. And the date for Constitution Day was chosen because the Constitution was approved at the original Constitutional Convention on September the 17th, 1787. Well, I think the day passed and we never said anything about it here at the ministry. But uh, today on A Plain Answer, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about the Constitution, maybe quite a bit about the Constitution. We have a number of questions that uh, have come up. And um, it's a very important document to our nation. Uh, we could say it kind of forms the bedrock of our government here in America. Uh, yet some of us feel that this is kind of being eroded away and that uh, government is becoming too top-heavy. So we need to look at this Constitution and find out what it says, what it allows, uh, where it came from. And um, to get us started, gentlemen... Has the Constitution always guided our country? And uh, let's review the three branches of, of government and and their stipulated role, just to, just to get us going today.
1: Well, the answer to the first question would be no. Uh, mm-hmm. This is actually the second constitution our nation has had. Uh, the first constitution was called the Articles of Confederation. It was drafted at the same time as the Declaration of Independence was being drafted in 1776. And it guided uh, the country through the Revolutionary War and into the 1780s. It was a weak national government by design. It had no executive branch. It Hmm. had no judicial branch. It was only a unicameral, a one-house legislature, where each state had one vote. And um, the feeling was, by, by many leaders, that it wasn't strong enough, and so they needed to form a more perfect union. As Mm. it says in the preamble to the Constitution. So they uh, called a convention that met in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia and drafted our current Constitution.
0: All right. So um, the Articles of Confederation, then, there was no executive branch and no judicial branch.
1: That's right. All right. And as a result, uh, Congress, the Continental Congress, could pass a law, but it had no way to enforce that law.
0: Ah, right. So the one branch that that was there was obviously the legislative branch, I guess you would say, but it really didn't have adequate powers to do anything, I guess.
1: Well, one area where this came up, it it actually hampered the war effort because what would happen is that the Congress would tell each state, here is your fair share of the money that we need in order to finance the Continental Army and and pay for our, Mm -hmm. our soldiers and so forth. And many states never... Coughed up all the money they were supposed to, and as a result, General Washington has to write letter after letter, complaining: "My men have no shoes. My men have no food. We haven't mm-hmm. been paid in years. Um, haven't fa-
0: been bathed in years. Paid. <laughs> well, I'm
1: sorry. I some of them see you. hadn't been bathed in years either, but that's a different story. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. um, so obviously, this Constitution is very important. Um, it provides a, a very important law of the land." a rule of law, we're based on law here, not just, you know, 51% of the vote and whatever 51% of the people want, and all of a sudden, the government can shift uh, drastically overnight.
2: No, it's not a democracy in that sense. It's a federal republic, and that's Mm -hmm. one thing we need to understand, and that's what this constitution formed.
0: Now, you mentioned um, the original Articles of Confederation, how that there was no judicial branch. And uh, we call our judicial branch what? Uh, the Supreme Court. And really? the lower courts. The lower courts, okay. It, right? Does uh, the Constitution allow for the Supreme Court to make law?
1: No. The function of the judicial branch is to, uh, of course, um, punish those who uh, adjudicate people who are accused of breaking the law and determining mm-hmm. whether or not they're innocent mm-hmm. or guilty and the appropriate punishment. Um, the more controversial area, of course, comes with the power of judicial review or the ability to interpret mm. law and determine whether a law is constitutional. The Constitution does not specifically give the Supreme Court that power. The Supreme Court claimed that power in 1803 in the case of Marbury versus Madison, and uh, mm. it, it, you know it's it's been an area of controversy ever since. If the Supreme Court interprets a law the way you like, then you think it's a good thing. If it yeah. interprets it the way you don't like, then obviously, mm. uh, it's a bad thing, but it's not explicitly stated in the Constitution.
0: I sometimes get the feeling as a, just an average Joe on the streets, average citizen, there's so many laws. How can you possibly uh, keep anything straight? Um, in a way, my hat's off to these uh, judges that, that understand laws and, and try to uh, obey the law and implement the law. There's just so many laws. Now, Mark, uh, here's a question for you. Uh, We're a Christian radio station here, obviously. Uh, We are not partisan. We're not Republican, not Democrat, etc. So why would we be interested in the subject of the Constitution, and, and even in particular the U.S. Constitution, since the Gospel of Christ transcends nations and boundaries.
2: Yeah, good question. Why are we talking about
0: this?
2: (laughs) I sent you guys an email and suggested it. That's why, right? That's right. No, I think that there's a lot of good reason for it, and I think we'll get to a second reason for it a little later, but Mm -hmm. I think the first and primary reason for it is because that the formation of this Constitution had uh, such a Christian worldview behind it. Hmm. And not only did it have a Christian worldview, but it established a nation that then grew out of that and became the greatest evangelist nation in the world, and I hmm. believe largely because of that constitution.
0: Okay. And another aspect would be just the notion that Christians are not only supposed to look forward to heaven, right? right but were to um, carry out the dominion mandate given to us. We're citizens here. From the very beginning. Right. And be good citizens. Right. We're to be salt. We're to be light. Yeah. Uh-huh. And,
2: and that makes it, I mean, th- th- that's why this Constitution is so u- unique. Because mm. the Christians always have had that mandate to be salt and light and to live in the world. And, of course, Paul mm-hmm. and the 11 apostles lived, or the 12 with Matthias, uh, living in the Roman world at that time. We're living in a pagan world. Mm -hmm. And uh, they needed to be salt and light, but very often what they were doing was they were going counter to what the society was. Mm -hmm. They were going counter even sometimes to the laws of the land. Mm -hmm. And they had to because uh, they had a higher mandate, and that was from God.
0: They could not violate the law of God.
2: Right. And so now you have a constitution that's been made that really goes along and and in many ways encourages the gospel of Mm -hmm. Jesus
0: Christ. That's a good point. Now hold that thought, because I see we're up against a break already on this program today. We're talking about the Constitution. And uh, joining me today, the Rev. Mark Diedrich and Dr. Hans Vogt. And uh, stay with us, we'll be right back for more of this interesting discussion. And welcome back. You're listening to a plain answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. In the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich, pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York, and Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor Ulster County Community College. We're talking today about the Constitution. It was just a little over a week ago on September the 17th, and it was uh, officially Constitution Day, and we never even mentioned it over the air, so in a way we're doing a little catch-up here. But um, we're working through some questions regarding the Constitution. We've already asked the question, does the Constitution allow the Supreme Court to make law? And uh, the next question would be, does the Constitution empower the President to make law?
1: Well, the purpose of the executive branch is to execute, that is to carry out or put into effect the laws passed by the legislature. The legislative branch is the branch that has the power to make laws.
0: All right, so we just need to keep that in mind anytime that comes up. It's, it's just simply, it's so simple. It's, it's the legislative branch that makes the laws.
1: Right. Where it gets into a potential gray area is that in carrying out the law, There is often room for interpretation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at a certain point, interpretation can slide into Mm -hmm. actually changing or making new
0: laws. Now, you just made me think of something. And what about these so called executive orders that presidents issue that uh, bind the entire nation? Where do they? Come in this hole.
1: Well, that's a good video. example. They're not anywhere mentioned uh, in the Constitution. Uh, another example would be the um, signing statements, which have become popular in recent years, where a president signs a bill and says, "But as I sign this, I will interpret it this way or, or do it this way." Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, that's that's kind of adding to oh, uh, right. the law.
0: Mm-hmm. Some, um, I, I'm thinking now, Supreme Court maybe, but. I've heard this phrase, um, uh, strict constructionist. Where where does that phrase come in all of this discussion? Help me understand that.
1: Well, it's how you interpret the Constitution. And one of the first times this debate between strict and loose construction came up was over whether or not uh, the federal government had the power to create a national bank. Hmm. Alexander Hamilton, who was the first Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and that's why he's on a $10 bill, Uh, he wanted to create a national bank, and he argued that this would enable uh, him as Secretary of the Treasury to stabilize the nation's finances, pay off the debt, create a a currency, and so forth. Thomas Jefferson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, this is George Washington's cabinet, said uh, that the Constitution did not grant the power to create a national bank. That's Hmm. not one of the enumerated powers of Congress in Article 1, Section 8. So Jefferson said, you can't do it. That's what we call strict construction. That's a good example. Unless the Constitution specifically allows the government to do something, it cannot do it. Mm -hmm. Now Hamilton took the opposite view, loose construction. Hamilton said, well, it doesn't say we can, but it doesn't say we can't either. And he pointed um, to the end of Article One, Section 8, to what is called the Necessary and Proper Clause, or Elastic Clause. Mm. And that says that Congress shall have all powers, necessary and proper, to carry the above, everything else that's in Article One, Section 8, into effect. Hamilton and loose constructionists ever since have basically argued that necessary and proper can be stretched, that's why it's called an Elastic Clause, yeah. to mean, basically, whatever is convenient or useful. Uh, and in that, a whole lot has been uh, shoehorned, if you will, uh, into the Constitution.
0: But wasn't there a, a listing of specifics related in that section? Yes. Uh, and so, if the specifics are listed, then it strongly implies there's limits on the elasticity.
1: Right. So, for example, in the case of the National Bank, Hamilton's argument was that Article One, Section Eight, gives Congress the power to coin money and regulate the value of money uh, and to regulate interstate commerce. Hamilton said, this bank will help us to regulate the value of money and regulate interstate commerce. Therefore, it is necessary and proper. Mm. Therefore, it is constitutional. But once you start doing that, of course, you know, clever lawyers can... You know, yeah, I'm a, Make anything mean. I'm anything afraid if of they lawyers.
0: I'm afraid. I, you know, I'm. I don't want to give my age away, but I've lived here long enough now where I'm afraid of lawyers because they're wordsmiths. They're able to twist the words and make them mean anything they want them to mean. It, they, they, they scare the living daylights out of me. Hey, um, here's another question: Does the Constitution give the federal government any power in the field of education? No. Word no, no. (laughs) It's just simple. (laughs) Well, that's simple. Yeah. Okay. But here's
1: how you get around it. Again, how how does loose construction work? The way you get around it is to, and the way Congress does get around it with things like No Child Left Behind or the Education Department, Mm -hmm. is to to appropriate money. Congress does have the power to appropriate money. That's for sure. And offers it to the states and to the local school districts. And then says, if you want the money, and there's no school district in this land that doesn't want the money, then you have to follow our regulations. So effectively bribing local school districts into complying with federal regulations. That's how it works.
2: Yeah, and that's a problem in and of itself. The government, uh, where where do we have authorization in the Constitution for the government
0: to actually be handing out money left and right like this? Well, I'm going to have to watch what I say here, but... um, It really burns me up when I see Congress, uh, Washington, whatever, spending money, like they say, like a drunken sailor. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't do that in our own household. And, um, hey, it's very tight right now for probably most people. I know the fellas in this room, it's very tight right now. And um, Mm -hmm. we have a budget. And it may not be written down, but mentally you know about where your boundaries are. And you just don't spend money uh, willy-nilly. And I get the idea, like, Washington, uh, they want to spend money, they just print it up. You can't do that. (laughs) Um, I see we're um, probably about halfway through this second part. Uh, Gentlemen, do you have any questions that you would want to raise at this point uh, that goes along with the flow of the discussion so far?
2: One of the things I I would have to say is we're talking about an elastic constitution and strict constructionists. It seems to me that there's even another area that goes beyond an elastic constitution, and that's the constitution where, where it's called a living document.
0: Oh, yeah, I've heard that.
2: And it seems to me it goes beyond it because it says, well, it's a living document. We can't freeze it in its time and space, and we've got to change it to accommodate the times. Hmm. Of course, we can change the Constitution to accommodate the times, but it's very difficult. Hmm. We do it by means of amendments, and we've got what, 22? 27. 27 amendments.
0: 27.
2: Yeah, there are a few of those that probably shouldn't have been made, but that's okay. Hmm. We won't talk about them. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we got a couple amendments. uh, One being made, and then another one made to contravene the one that was made. Yeah, Um, but that's a good point. So these amendments, the process is. But you have the process. But what has happened now is, well, when was the last amendment passed?
1: Well, 1992 was the 27th amendment. It was actually part of the original Bill of Rights Madison proposed. It didn't get ratified at that time. It hung around and hung around, and finally, in 1992, it got ratified. And that's the one about pay raises, that hmm. Congress can't raise their own pay.
2: And so that, that one finally got ratified, but they're very few and far between. I know there was an ERA, uh, Equal Rights Amendment, uh, that was being pushed and pushed for years and years, mm-hmm. and it never made it. And right, just it, missed. And so mm-hmm. you have a number of amendments that have been trying to be made, but haven't been made. Now, as far as I can think, probably, uh, Hans, you know better than I do, uh, how many
1: amendments have been tried to be pushed recently? There have been proposals. I'm trying to remember what the last one was that was actually passed by Congress. Mm -hmm. But I don't
2: think there's anything much going on seriously in that area. Instead, what has gone on is you just load your Supreme Court with justices that believe that the Constitution is a living document, and then you can say abortion is a constitutional right. Oh, yes. And anybody who reads the Constitution would know that that's an outrageous statement. Mm.
0: Now, Mark, you're on an interesting line of thought here, and I want to tie it back to something you had mentioned when we had the mics off, and that was, uh, there's an analogous situation here to um, the biblical. Positions uh, and and the Bible, and uh, how do we look at the Bible? Do we look at it as as having uh, little seeds of truth, but generally that right. you know we can we can reform it into our own image, or is it is it stable? Uh, yeah. Is it a living document? And that's the real problem. Mm-hmm. I see what
2: happens in our country is parallel to what has happened in the Christian church. Yeah. And it's happened almost at the same time, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's which is
0: one yeah. of the, the unfortunate and things. There may even be a cause and effect there, I right. wonder.
2: Yes. Well, I, I have no doubt, because mm. actually it occurred with the Bible a little bit beforehand. Which, by the way, one of the things we didn't mention was, you know, we have, if you really want to look, and I know there's some people going to debate, uh, might want to debate me biblically, but, you know, what is the Biblical rulership in the church? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at Acts, and you look at Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, you see that the church basically is ruled by elders and deacons. Mm -hmm. You have two parties. You also, you can see in, in Acts, if you will, a pastor, almost an executive. You almost have a legislative. You also have uh, courts and bodies. At the time of the American Revolution, it was called by many the Presbyterian Revolution because the form of government, which finally came out and was advocated, was essentially Presbyterian, which mm-hmm. I consider to be a very biblical form of government. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have these things going together now what has happened with the bible of course is people came and looked at the bible and they said well there's a lot of stuff in the bible we don't want to follow and let's kind of make that a a living document or, or else we'll just say it has some errors and, mm-hmm. and of course then what happens when you say the bible has errors you cherry pick which are the errors and which is, is sure, the truth sure. and so you make the bible say whatever you want now there are churches today you can go to certain churches And they will tell you that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is okay. Hmm. Well, the only reason that they can say that is because they have cherry-picked the Bible, if you will, or they have said that it's a living document, and they have not read it fully in its complete context. Mm -hmm. Because the Bible doesn't say homosexuality is okay, it says it is a sin. Yeah, Plain and simple.
0: So these are some analogies. They're very interesting, and and yeah, even uh, cause and effect. I think uh, between how we treat the Bible and how we treat this very important historical document we call the Constitution, and is it a living document or isn't it regarding the Constitution? Um, How strict do you interpret it? So uh, obviously, there's uh, differences between uh, the Holy Scripture. And uh, the United States Constitution. These yeah. are just analogies that we're yeah, making.
2: They're analogies. Yeah, the the Bible is inspired by God and is inerrant. The Constitution is a great document uh, made by godly men, but has had mm-hmm. errors, and that's why we have an amendment process. We don't need an yeah. amendment process for the Bible. Yeah, oh, that's excellent, <laughs>
0: right? And uh, earlier we were working through some questions. And uh, I see we're almost out of time for this program. Let me ask one more really hot potato question. And uh, this might get some people worked up, but here goes. Um, does the Constitution allow a president to take the nation into war? No. Whoa. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very clear no.
1: that the power to declare war is uh, given to Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, And... Unfortunately, the last time Congress exercised that power was on December 8th, 1941, when uh, we declared war on Japan in response to Pearl Harbor. Every president since FDR has fought at least one military conflict. Not one of them have asked Congress to exercise its power to declare war. Yeah. And Congress has not basically challenged the presidents either.
0: And here's an example where this broadcast ministry is nonpartisan because uh, it burns us up, frankly, everybody on the board, uh, uh, that our president, whoever he is or she is, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter, takes us into war without going through the constitutional process, right? Right.
1: And for Congress to abdicate its responsibility, and you might say, well, why would they do that? Why, why don't they call any of these presidents on it? Well, because it's politically safe yeah. for them to go along with it. Mm-hmm. And if it succeeds, if the war succeeds, then the members of Congress can share in the credit. Mm-hmm. And if it fails or it doesn't seem to be succeeding, then they can turn around and blame the president and say it's all the president's fault.
0: Mm. Uh, it, it looks like, um, it almost looks like, it has the appearance that Congress is making the decision uh, in in recent practices when there's a congressional vote that authorizes the President to enforce United Nations Security Council resolutions, um, but that is not the same as a formal declaration of right. war, is it?
1: No, that's basically saying we will... Allow the President to continue doing what he's already doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's
1: a me too. Uh, but it's not uh, taking the actual leadership on the issue and making the decision mm-hmm. that the Constitution requires of, of the legislature. Yeah.
0: I, um, I'm very leery of um, using our military power in a willy-nilly way. You know, quite some time ago, us, same three gentlemen, met and we discussed just war theory. And we believe in in just wars. They're unfortunate, but they're necessary. But um, you don't go into war willy-nilly, and our Constitution requires Congress to declare war. So thanks for that answer. Hey, we're out of time already. Thank you so much for joining us today here on A Plain Answer. There's so much left undone yet to discuss. I think we'll uh, continue this discussion into next week. Today in the studio with me has been the Reverend Mark Diedrich, and Dr. Hans vote. Check out uh, iTunes, we are there All these programs are posted Under Redeemer Broadcasting As well as our website Under A Plain Answer For Redeemer Broadcasting and A Plain Answer I'm Dan Elmendorf May our Lord richly bless you today As you serve Him